After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? For they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved, because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had been reclining at the table close to him, and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Amen. Father, we're here this morning hungry and ready. Make our hearts soft. Open our eyes. Amen. So it doesn't normally happen this way, but about four different people um, kind of approached me separately to pray over me. Uh, which can either mean maybe I was planning a tragedy and they saved me by praying uh, or uh, that the Lord really wants to do something. And so my, my prayer this morning is that every heart be ready to receive 
what the Lord has for you this morning. I'm going to start off with two just brief stories, though fictional in content and character, they uh, are obviously true to form for humanity. Blake is a junior in college. Classes have been brutal as the spring semester draws to a close. And after returning from a college ministry event, he logs online and begins to search inappropriate content. He knows it's wrong, but he's just so numb. He just can't fathom, as he thinks later on, what people would say if they knew. Or there's Cassandra, a mother of four young children, Married for 12 years, and after 12 years, she's grown really tired of waiting for her husband to notice her. So she indulges in a little social media flattery. And not long, she finds herself saying and doing things that at the altar when she gave her vows, never dreamed were possible. And she wonders, how would her husband respond if he knew? You see, this morning, we're going to be talking a little bit about shame. And we're looking primarily at one huge, big idea that I hope you walk away with, and that's just simply this, that Jesus restores completely what we ruin totally. Think about that. We have this sense, and this is what shame does, it, it, it breaks the inside part of us that thinks that there's change possible that we can actually follow after the leading of the Lord. And I just want you to keep your eyes on Jesus this morning because we're going to watch how he handles it in John 21. The first thing we notice, you can turn in your Bibles, uh, if you have them, to John chapter 21 or the Black Pew Bible. I think it's page 907 if you want to follow along. It's really good to have a print Bible in front of you. I just want to encourage you in that. Okay, So the passage has already been read for us. So I'm going to key in on a few different spots. We're going to be looking at a meal with the disciples. We're going to be looking at some questions Jesus has for Peter. And then how do we put it all together? So the first thing that we notice in verses 6 and 11 is that Jesus provides when it comes to a meal with his disciples. Now, you might be wondering, why is it significant that Jesus would actually show up on the scene and be cooking food for them? Um, Because if you realize toward the end of that first chunk in John 21, it actually says this is the third time that he had appeared. And the other time that he had appeared, he actually took food and ate it. And I don't want to like bypass the obvious, but why would he do that? Because he's alive. (laughs) He's really alive and he's taking food. It's just further proof of of the resurrection. Like he's just going to eat. I love that. But In particular, he has all these disciples out in the water. They fished all night. We already know that Peter kind of has, Peter kind of has the group, doesn't he? He kind of has that personality that is like, if he says it, everybody else is going to be like, yeah, let's do what Peter's doing. Like right at the beginning, Peter's like, I'm going to go fish. And all the guys are like, yeah, we're going to go too. It's like, we got nothing better to do. So think about that, just the tension of like, okay, Jesus died, he's resurrected, he's revealed himself two times to us now, but like great instructions really weren't given, I don't really have a roadmap, and like my former life, it still paid me. And so let's go fishing. And so they get nothing. 
all night. Probably not uncommon, but you know. So Jesus provides no fish, and then later on we learn 153 large ones. I love how, how, how God is so tender to put just small details like that to kind of capture our attention. 153 fish. Pierce and I sometimes go out to Sauter Lake and we have like fishing contests, and he destroys me. But it's, he'll catch like 20 in like two hours. 153. That's a lot of fish. So Jesus provides, and then he feeds them. You see it in verses 12 and 13, where he's like, hey, here's, here's the fish. Here's some bread for you. He's feeding them on the beach. Um, and let's just stop for a minute and just ask this question. What is a meal all about? When was the last time that you were invited to a meal where someone didn't either want to show their love for you or come to know you more deeply? Or just provide for you. Meals are not typically something you invite enemies to. Meals are invitations to intimacy. And so here's Jesus on the beach. Could you imagine the disciples? <laughs> like, like coming up on shore and there's Jesus. And like it says that everybody knew it was him. No one dared ask, right? How nervous and how quiet is that meal? I'm just going to nibble on my fish here. That's really the Lord. It's like right there. <laughs> and, and no one's asking. And, and I love this about Jesus. No scolding. You know, we learned from Zechariah that you strike the shepherd and then the, the sheep will scatter. So Jesus gets arrested and not only does Peter deny him, not only does Judas betray him, but all of his disciples flee. And so then Jesus, when he comes back to see them, he sees them behind locked doors first two times. Because they're scared. And he sees them a third time on the beach engaging in their former life, fishing. And what, is, what does he do? He doesn't say this. This is what I love. He doesn't say, hey, remember a short while ago I was arrested. All of you just kind of took off. Uh, and then the last two times I found you, you're like locked behind closed doors because you're really scared. Uh, hey, what's going on, fellas? And he doesn't scold them. He said, hey, come and eat. And they get off the boat and they sheepishly make their way toward Jesus on the shore. I love it. I think it's important for us to understand that he says the same to us today. Just come and eat. Come and eat. Second thing that we find is that Jesus has some questions for Peter. Remember, if... if Jesus restores completely what we ruin totally. That means he must have a way of undoing shame in a way that we don't understand. And he, he puts it on full display here with Peter. So the first thing that we notice in verse 9 is the charcoal. It says that he was waiting on the beach by a charcoal fire. Now, when you think of a charcoal fire... I love Weber grills. I don't know about you guys. Uh, and maybe this is just a little bit of nostalgia for me. But like I remember growing up and it was like, um, you know, you go out and you light the grill and you have to wait like a good, what, 15, 20 minutes. And for our family, because we were cooking for like a tribe, it was like a whole bag of charcoal. But the smell was awesome, right? Like there was just something about it. You're like, yes, here it comes. But it's, it's interesting when you look at this term charcoal, it only appears two times in the New Testament. And both times it's in connection with Peter. 
In, in John 18, 18, Peter is warming himself by a charcoal fire while he is progressively denying Jesus. And then Peter hops out of the boat. He sees Jesus. He swims 100 yards. I'm not a great swimmer. Maybe a poet could tell me how this works. But like swimming with lots of clothes on doesn't sound super fun. But like he, he's got his outer garment on and he's just huffing it. He gets all the way to shore and he sees a charcoal fire. What's your first thought if you're Peter? Oh, dang. <laughs> and I, it's a little nuance of scripture that I love that Jesus just, he takes us back to that former place of shame. And, and if there were like a truth to life moment here, I would just put it this way. You must face the failure. You must face it. And I, I think maybe it's even better to consider it this way. Um, there's this phrase that always makes me pause, that most of us are better with a microscope than a mirror, right? Like, I can look at, at Phil Brown, and I can take his actions, and I can put them, like, in a little Petri dish, and I can stick them under a microscope, and I can pick them apart, and I can, like, tear him to pieces, right? All the whole time being the most prideful, arrogant human being on the planet and not see it in myself, I'm way better with a microscope than I am a mirror. And so was Peter. So was Peter. And we see that kind of beginning to unfold because Peter was like, I would never do this. Consider, perhaps, the possible progression of Peter's thoughts in this passage. I think it's significant. You see, in Luke chapter 5, which John 21 parallels. In Luke chapter 5, it's the calling of Peter and a few other disciples to become Christ's followers. And in the same show, it would have been a whole night of no fish. And Jesus, while on the boat with them, says, hey, do this. Cast your nets over this way. And they have such a large catch of fish in, in Luke 5, 1 through 11, I think. They have such a large catch of fish that the two boats are like kind of beginning to sink. It's huge. And what does Peter do in that moment? In that moment, Peter is like, he does the same thing that Isaiah did in Isaiah chapter 6. When Isaiah has his throne room vision of the Lord and he's like, he's undone. And he's like, whoa, I am an unclean man of unclean lips. I can't do what you're asking. Please get away from me. That's what, that's what Peter does. Peter sees Jesus for who he is, for the, the, the magnificent glory. And he's like, I can't, no, just get away. That's, that's his response. He's terrified because he understands his sin and the holiness of God. But it didn't last. You see, Peter develops a sort of self-confidence. In John 6, 66 through 68, he says this, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. That was right after Jesus did the eat my flesh, drink my blood sort of thing. Pretty a good way like, to thin the crowd. If, you, if you're like, like building a social media following, maybe toss that out there. You'll, uh, you'll lose some followers pretty quick. But he says those things, and it says many people leave. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Like, look, you have it all. Nothing I want besides you is, is what he's saying. You have the words of eternal life. So Peter, that's a right proclamation, but look how it begins to develop. In John 13, verses 37 and 38, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? This is the Last Supper. Jesus is talking about what's coming. 
He said, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you? Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Or hop over to Matthew 26, 33 through 35. Peter answered Jesus again, saying, Though they all will fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Jesus is like, bro, give it a few hours. (laughs) You're not really with me. And Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. So Jesus has some questions for Peter. And before we get to those questions, maybe two truth-to-life things to consider. As we watch the progression of Peter's pride kind of rising up a little bit, um, maybe this first question will be, right, targeted at your heart, because it hit me (laughs) as I was preparing this, and I'm like, yeah, this one's for me. Um, I wonder, have you ever developed a self-confidence that needed to be corrected later on? Have you ever grown so confident, either in your ability or in your lane of how you were living, that no one could correct you, that no one had access Everybody who said something to you was like, you don't understand. This is Peter. And so I'm wondering if Peter is rehearsing in his head his denial against his strong confessions. Hey, wait a minute. Three times I was given the opportunity to stand with him. Three times I just bailed. And I wonder if maybe that's you. I wonder if you're saying, man, I've screwed up way too bad. I've I've made a wreck of my marriage. I don't know. I've I've cheated time out at my job. Maybe that's you. Hang on, because the news is good. And it's getting better. Because in the first miraculous catch of fish, we see Peter, and he responds like Isaiah. He's terrified. He's asking Jesus to depart from him because of his sin. But there is a key difference that we see in John 21. We see him jumping out of the boat to get to Jesus. Now we have no record that Jesus, besides the other two appearances, we have no record that Jesus and Peter had had a conversation that would even smooth things over in the least bit. Yet Peter is jumping out of a boat to swim to shore to get to the one that he hurt so deeply. Let me ask you. Have you ever thought that possible in your shame? Have you ever thought it possible that the one that you've so deeply hurt, you would actually be drawn to? And I don't mean drawn like I could just hide and and maybe tiptoe around and maybe if I just learned the right ways to relate, it would be good and, and we'd be like all better. But like warts and all, I've screwed up, I don't care. I am for you, Jesus, I want you. Have you ever thought that possible? In your shame to think, yeah, I could run to him. But Peter does, and my question is why? What changes? How does Jesus handle him so that Peter knows that that's even a possibility? How does he do it? Blows my mind. 
And I don't have a good answer. I really wish I did. I think maybe it's better if at this moment from like a truth to life perspective, I just want you to pause. And will you just rejoice with me in this fact? Jesus wants you. Jesus receives you. Jesus restores you. Jesus feeds you. Jesus invites you over and against your shame to come to him. And so then we move down to Jesus where he's finally going to get to some of these questions he's got. And his primary question is, do you love me? And I find it interesting, um, author and researcher Brene Brown, who has done a ton of extensive work researching shame and vulnerability, says this. Shame cannot survive being spoken. It cannot survive empathy. This is Jesus on the shore waiting for Peter. And so Jesus begins by saying, Simon. Now you think, oh, well, that's not a big deal. He's calling him Simon, right? But if you go back to uh, John chapter 1, verse 42, when Peter is, is first introduced to Jesus, um, his name is changed. So first of all, you know, Jesus wins. He can change names. <laughs> so he, but he changes, he, he changes Simon's name to Peter. And it's significant because Simon carries with it this idea of a connotation of like pebble or lightly moved. And he's going to name him Rock. So here's an unstable, easily flappable thing that's going to be a rock. It's a play on words that Jesus does. And so in John chapter 1, that's the play on words. He's saying, hey, look, you're, you're a light, you're unstable, but I'm going to name you the rock. And you're like, okay, so like, why does that matter? Watch what he does in John 21. He says, Simon. He's, he's, he says it three times. Same, same amount of times that he says, do you love me? He also addresses him by his former name. What he's doing is not rubbing his nose in it. What he's doing is saying, you're weak. I'm reminding you of your weakness. It's that um, line from what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 12 where he says, you know, hey, look, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. And so here's Peter learning a very strong lesson. Though I am a light and unstable thing, it's Jesus who makes me a rock. It's his grace that is sufficient for my weakness. I love it. And Paul even talks about this idea of, I'm going to boast in my weakness. Why? Because boasting in my weakness actually brings power to rest on me. I want the power of Jesus. I want his spirit filling me up. And to do that, I need to boast in my weakness. So he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he does that a few times. But his first question starts with more than these. And there's been some debate as to like what that might mean, I think, personally. Uh, he is, again, coming against Peter's strong confessions of, I'm never going to deny you. Everybody else is going to run. I'm hanging with you. And then here's Jesus on the shore. Everybody's dead quiet, not asking any questions, eating a meal. And he says, do you love me? More than these. Peter, are you rightly humbled now? Do you understand? 
Do you think you love me more than these people? And Peter's like, Man, how powerful is that, how Jesus comes after his shame? He doesn't run from him. And then he says three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And I think he does it one for each denial. It's where I get this understanding that Jesus restores completely what I just, like, totally ruin. And so Peter is now, like, he's learning, you know, true love. It's not a light confession, It's a deeply embodied conviction. And Jesus is showing that to Peter. And he meets Peter where he's at. He starts by saying, do you agapeo me? Like, do you have the deepest form of biblical sense of love? Peter's like, yeah, I love you. Like a brother, like phileo. And then he says it again, do you love me? Do you agapeo? And Peter's like, yeah, I'm all over it. I love you, phileo. And then finally, the third time, Peter Uh, is asked the question, Jesus says, do you love me like a brother? He meets him on his level, says, hey, I can work with that. Let's move in that vein. So truth to life then, I would just say this, that he holds my shame up against his purpose. This is what Jesus does. He holds my shame up against his purpose and he says, this far and no further, I'm gonna have the final word. And I don't know if you feel that way in your shame and your struggles and your condemnation. But I would just say that that's what Jesus does. He says, what's your shame compared to my purpose? Is it really that big? Is it? And then Jesus is saying truth to life to us, like, do you love me? I'm not asking for incredible acts. I'm not asking for phenomenal sermons. I'm not asking for books. I'm not asking for 28 discipleship meetings a month. I'm not asking for great missionary campaigns. I'm asking, do you love me? That's what I want to know. Do you love me? Blake, searching inappropriate things on the internet. Do you love me? Cassandra cheating on her husband after taking in some social media flattery. Do you love me? Doug Rumble, in your pride, in your anger, do you love me? Do you love me? So then how do we put this all together? If Jesus is to restore completely what I ruined totally, how do we put it together? I think it starts with tasting and seeing. Psalm 34, 8 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And then we see in Revelation 3, verses 19 through 21, those whom I love, this is Jesus speaking, I reprove and I discipline. Praise God. So be zealous and repent. God doesn't discipline so that you're like done being uncomfortable. He actually disciplines because his love is, and his patience is meaning to lead you toward repentance. And so that's what he says in Revelation 3. So be zealous and repent. Why? Because I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him. There's that concept of a meal again. And he with me, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit on my throne also as I conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. 
It's this idea of ruling and rest that he gives to us when we come to him. And as Luke and the worship team come back up to give us a final number to consider some things, I want to just park on, okay, it's taste and see, and it's also new morning mercies. Lamentations 3, verses 19 through 26 says this, Remember my affliction, my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to those, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It's about his faithfulness to restore and redeem. And I'm asked, and so are you, do you love me? As Luke and the team play a song for us, I just want you to consider some of what we've talked about. You should have enough notes there to think it through and to pray it through. And if you would like prayer during the song, you're welcome to to join me down front. Or afterwards, there will be a number of people on a prayer team. You can just hang out in your seat and everybody else as they exit, you can just wait. And we'd love to pray for you.
with no drink I need you I need you I know you made a home inside this heart of stone so turn it into flesh I give you all I have I'm holding nothing back Jesus I am yours Jesus, I am yours. Take over, lover of my soul. Take control, I surrender. There's nothing I want more than to know. kingdoms next to you you're the Lord you're the Lord I could gain the world and more it's all nothing next to you my reward my reward what am I supposed to do with all my kingdoms next to you. You're the Lord. You're the Lord. And I, I could gain, gain the world and more. It's all nothing next to you. My reward. My reward. Take over I surrender There's nothing I want more Than to know you, Lord What am I supposed to do With all my kingdoms You're the Lord You're